All right, open the book of Proverbs to chapter 12. As a reminder, we are in collection two. So the book of Proverbs is organized into seven collections. We have the first collection focuses on the child or the youth, and it is sort of the easiest to follow along as chunks of text. It is designed to be read more easily than the other sections. And when we get through that, we we see at the very beginning we're given the purpose statement. And remember, verses 2 and 3 of the first chapter say, to hear wisdom and instruction, to see the words of understanding, to grab the instruction of success, justice, judgment, and equity. And then there's a thesis for the whole book. And the thesis is sort of the central argument that keeps getting unwrapped and getting shown to us. And it's, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so there was a chiastic structure to the rest of that first section that you can see outlined there on the handout. And we're now in collection two. In collections two, three, and four, or sort of the language you see over and over again points to an adult male. Now, you might have a young man. Uh, you'll have references to... You know, to kind of early stages of household, but the idea is that this is a man who um, is sort of making his way in the world. And then in collections five, six, and seven, there's a focus on fatherhood, leadership, uh, and the idea of sort of grandfathership, so the older man sort of status. So this is the organization of the book. So we're in collection two, which is uh, the 375 Proverbs of Solomon, which are associated with the number of his name. And so we have chapter 12, verse 1. The goal today is to get through the whole chapter, so buckle up. Verse 1, whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. A good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of wicked intentions he will condemn. A man is not established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous cannot be moved. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. But she who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. The thoughts of the righteous are right, but the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. The words of the wicked are lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright will deliver them. The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. A man will be commended according to his wisdom, but he who is of a perverse heart will be despised. Better is the one who is slighted, but has a servant, than he who honors himself, but lacks bread. A righteous man regards the life of his animal, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. He who tills his land will be satisfied with bread, but he who follows frivolity is devoid of understanding. The wicked covet the catch of evil men, but the root of the righteous yields fruit. The wicked is ensnared by the transgression of his lips, but the righteous will come through trouble. A man will be satisfied with good by the fruit of his mouth, and the recompense of a man's hands will be rendered to him. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. A fool's wrath is known at once, but a prudent man covers shame. 
He who speaks truth declares righteousness, but a false witness deceit. There is one who speaks like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise promotes health. The truthful lip shall be established forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but counselors of peace have joy. No grave trouble will overtake the righteous, but the wicked shall be filled with evil. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal truthfully are his delight. A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims foolishness. The hand of the diligent will rule, but a lazy man will be put to forced labor. Anxiety in the heart of man causes depression, but a good word makes it glad. The righteous should choose his friends carefully, for the way of the wicked leads them astray. The lazy man does not roast what he took in hunting, but diligence is man's precious possession. And the way of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. All right, so back to verse 1. So the first thing I want to point out, 28 verses, okay, the first 14 are our first section. Um, and these first three verses serve as an introduction to that section. And when we go through this, the whole chapter is organized sort of into collections that focus on words or works. And so what we're going to see is sort of the emphasis of that. Now, verses 4 to 7 are focused on speech and the effects it has on the household. And then we're going to see in verses 8 to 12 how work relates to property. And then in verses 13 to 14, it's sort of a concluding connector set uh, that's going to connect into the next section. And the next section begins with verse 15, which is a very brief introduction. Verses 16 to 23 are going to give us a focus on words and their power, what they do. And then verses 24 to 27 will focus on work again and its effects. And then there's the conclusion. And so the major introduction and conclusion help us to capture uh, the meaning of, of the whole and to see the point that is being driven in. So let's look at the introduction. The first three verses. Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. A good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of wicked intentions he will condemn. A man is not established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous cannot be moved. So we have the themes of stability and how that relates to wickedness versus righteousness. We have the idea of, of favor versus, you know, sort of blessing versus curse in verse 2 and how it relates to righteousness. And then we have the idea of the righteous and them being wise and loving wisdom and therefore loving the instruments of getting wisdom versus the wicked, the foolish, and that relationship to correction or rebuke. Now, verse 1 encourages us to love discipline. Right? So that word instruction mainly 
we think about instruction, and we think about just kind of verbal teaching, but instruction is sort of broader. It's, it's the process of, of discipling or disciplining in terms of a positive and negative discipline. And so the word for correction there is really better translated as rebuke. Uh, correction, for example, when you're used to seeing correction in, in 2 Timothy 3.16, the use of correction there is about the positive assertion of what to put on. And so you'll have that, that chain of things about the, in, you have the, the teaching, the doctrine, you have the idea of the rebuke, the convictive sin, you have the correction for what to put on, and then you have the, um, the instruction or training in righteousness. Okay? And so this, the correlation here, this Hebrew word correlates more to the idea of rebuke. So uh, we're talking about instruction or discipline in the broad way in the first verse, and this idea of the love of instruction, whereas the stupid particularly hates being rebuked, being told he's wrong. And the hatred of being told you're wrong, the hatred of negative discipline, we are told is stupid. And the frank nature of the scriptures on this point should cause us to give pause. And this sort of plainness of calling something out we should make sure to store that up in our hearts and be ready to apply it to ourselves. When someone brings rebuke to us, we must be careful to understand the rebuke. And perhaps you are wiser and more righteous than me, but I still struggle, right? When somebody comes to me with something and says, you've done this thing wrong, you're wrong about this, right? My natural temptation, in my flesh, I just want to say, what are you talking about? I'm right. And to not even listen to the full correction, right? but the desire to be right. We want to justify self. And this is the tendency in the flesh. And so you have to train yourself to, to grab that, and to, to catch it. You have to control yourself to listen to a rebuke, the whole of it, to understand what the person is saying. Because let's be honest. Typically when we're rebuking others, we are not performing at our best because we tend to be nervous. The one giving the rebuke is having a hard time too. And it's because we all know that we all hate being rebuked. And so we have to encourage rebuke. And if you love rebuke, which is wisdom, and the hatred of rebuke is stupid. If you love rebuke, if you want to know when you're wrong, you need to make it easy for people to rebuke you. Now, if they're wrong, then you talk through with them in a controlled way, a reasonable way, showing them why they are wrong. And that's often necessary. But it's also often necessary to accept the rebuke. And so the sorting process of conversation, of discussion, is necessary. And so, you know, we have the, you have this attitude of trying to to understand the rebuke and make sure to get what the rebuke is before responding to it. And that sort of judicial attitude allows you to cool yourself. So the love of instruction shows a love of knowledge because instruction, training, discipline, yields knowledge. But the hatred of rebuke, which is the negative aspect of discipline, shows stupidity because it shows a slowness to learn, which is what stupidity is about. Stupidity is about the slowness to learn. And you can be stupid because you don't want to learn or you can be stupid because you simply want to continue believing something, right? You, 
You might have a sin that you're trapped in. And if you have to believe this thing, then you're going to have to get rid of the thing you love. And so the stupidity can be caused by sin in the sense of something that you love that you're worried about being told to hate. Or it can be caused by an unwillingness to listen. And as a result, you, you do foolishness. Now, we're given that as a general piece. We're reminded, this is the sort of language, you know, Proverbs 12.1 should be reminiscent to you of the whole first nine chapters. And then we get to verse 2, and this is sort of a restatement of the covenant of works, right? This is a law statement, right? A good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of wicked intentions he will condemn, right? This is purely true under the law. This is absolutely true under the law. And so apart from Christ, this is covenant of works telling us we're doomed. But there's also the providential value of this in terms of we who are forgiven by Christ, knowing that the law condemns us but that we are forgiven in Christ, we now know that as we seek to apply the law, it tends to result in the pouring out of blessing. And as we sin, and as we reject the law of God, it tends to result in cursing. Now that cursing, as opposed to a condemning unto eternal death, or an everlasting death, it's, it's a chastisement for the children of God. That, that curse is chastisement in that context. But there is a way, we remember the law, the, the preaching of the covenant of works has the purpose of causing people to say, I am undone. And so the, the fear of God that is the beginning of knowledge, is the beginning of wisdom. It causes people to search for the mercy of God. Now, a man is not established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous cannot be moved. The root would be sort of the inward man and the foundational things. The, the first principles, the word of God, right, organized, the, the more basic to less basic inside of the word of God. The word of God includes logic and it includes all of the propositions explicitly given and all the necessary inferences and then there's also of course the decrees of God right so we think about the word of God in terms of the fullest sense we have the, the mind of Christ right we have the mind of God is the word of God but we have the word given to us and that provides stability and just as a culture needs a stable foundation the individual needs a stable root in order to build. And so stability is provided by the word of God. And so Psalm 1, with the, the, the roots of the tree by the river being deeply embedded there. You think about that tree that cannot be moved. In comparison to where Psalm 1 talks about the wicked and how they are like chaff that's blown away. The, the lack of stability, like the, 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 the degree of difference is well established there. How much easier is it to move chaff that can be blown by the wind than to remove a tree that would require dozens of men pulling on ropes to, to pull it down? Right? That's the difference. So this stability, this gives stability to the individual life. So from that, then what's the produce of that stable sort of life and the blessing that comes from the application of the law of God and from this continuing seeking of knowledge of him who loves knowledge? Okay, so these three verses give us the context to go into now 
the words and works that flow out of that knowledge, that flow out of that blessedness, that flow out of that idea of the stability. So verses 4 to 7. An excellent wife, and, and verse 4 here, you know I really love the men of valor and the usage of the term women of valor. And this is one of the three places, right? You have the wife of valor, the woman of valor. Um, this, this is used in Ruth, right, to refer to Ruth. And this is used also in Proverbs 31 and talks about, you know, a woman of valor. And so we have here another text about a woman of valor. So a woman of valor is the crown of her husband. Remember, a man of valor is, is a man who is able to be relied upon in combat. Right? He's, a, he's a steady soldier. He is a mighty man is another way of referring to him. And so this is a, a mighty woman, a kingly woman, a woman of valor, a woman who gets things done. I remember, and those of you who were in the Bible study at my house, remember Genesis with the, you have the introduction where, where the servant of Abraham is sent to get Isaac a bride, and you have the introduction to Rebecca. And with Rebecca, she's introduced by fulfilling sort of this epic scene, right? It's very similar to like a, a Homeric, Iliadic moment of some soldiers fighting, and it gives this long list of quick actions. And the quick actions are, she pulls up enough water out of the well to give camels a full drink and to provide for this whole group of camels and men that come from Abraham's house to Lamech's, not Lamech, Laban, come to Laban's property. And so this is this sort of introduction. She's emblemizing sort of the, the woman of valor by her fast action and hospitality and provision there. Well, Proverbs 31 does the same sort of thing. You read through all the stuff the Proverbs 31 woman does, and it's just action, action, action. She's doing things, doing things, doing things, getting things done, and she's applying wisdom. And so when you have wisdom, it allows you to make choices quickly because wisdom is knowing the goal, like the good, knowing God, his glory, and it's knowing the means, the law of God. It teaches you how to glorify God. It's right, so a wisdom, knowing the good, knowing the means to the good, allows for decisive or quick action. And so it allows for decisive and quick, excellent action. It allows for kingliness to be useful. And so the woman of valor is the crown of her husband. But she who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. Right, so think about a woman who is trying to learn, so she's trying to be careful. She's not going to be the crown of her husband, but she's not going to bring shame. The woman who does quick action foolishly will bring shame. And the woman who does quick action wisely will bring honor. Right? So the decisiveness allows for one direction or the other to be magnified. And so the woman of valor is the crown of her husband. And, and, and a crown, you think about a crown, and obviously that relates to kingliness, but the idea of a crown relates to honor, authority, power, glory. And so the woman of valor gives her husband glory in the eyes of men, gives him credibility, and encourages him to have power. Remember, a wife is a prophecy to those who look at her of what the husband does in leadership. It's a prediction. The way the wife is is a prediction 
that if you make this man an elder or a deacon or if you give him authority over something, what, what will his leadership yield? How will it shape people? And so a, a woman of valor is the crown of her husband because public office, you look at public office and until you can govern your home well, you cannot govern well in public. And governing the wife is the first action governing outside of self, right? So you govern yourself well, it helps you to get a good wife. You govern your wife well, it helps you to have good children. Governing your children and your wife well helps you to have resources and helps it to cause other people to want to follow you in the public sphere. And so those are things that can be looked upon. And sometimes we look at money as sort of a sign for that. That's why it's so easy for rich men, even if they haven't run their houses well, to get power, because money is sort of a proxy for intelligence and competence. But it's not the whole story. You can get money without those things, right? But you can also, you can run your family really terribly and make a lot of money. And so you have to look at the household and look deeper, which is, again, why hospitality is very important in terms of looking at officers. So when we see the wife of valor as the crown of the husband, let's look at these other verses in terms of how this all relates. This is, by the way, what's the, the principal way the husband leads the wife? By washing her with the word. And so in washing the wife with the word, the idea is that her beauty and excellence are made more prominent. And so the wife who causes shame, right, either false doctrine is being taught and she's being turned into a shrew by the husband, or perhaps a total neglect is occurring and there's a displacement of roles. And so whatever is happening there, this failure to lead or this leading badly, right, that results in shame to the man and the rottenness in the bones. Now, rottenness in the bones, let's think about that as it relates to the idea of, of, of a crown, right? Crown's about sort of glory, power, authority, and credibility and leadership. Rottenness in the bones, uh, well, that's not glorious. It doesn't increase your power, it makes you weak. And in addition to that, it's going to make it so that that tends to take away authority because if you're not able to exercise power, authority tends to flee from you as you don't accomplish work. And furthermore, it's going to destroy your credibility to lead. If you have this sense of inward pain, it's going to undermine your own confidence and therefore your credibility. In other words, we'll look at your wife and we'll find that your leadership is not credible. And so the use of the word to govern the household, verse 5, the thoughts of the righteous are right, but the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. Well, if the righteous is thinking rightly, he's able to make good choices to lead. And he's able to therefore teach well in the house. But the husband that communicates falsehood and counsels with deceit, right? the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. That deception isn't just always like trying to trick in an obvious way, like, oh, where's my, uh, where's my wallet? I can't find it, honey. Oh, it's in the other room, and then trying to grab the wallet and take money out. Not just that kind of overt cartoonish deception, right? We're talking about a philosophical deception. The foolish man teaches the wife not to value God as the good, but to look to other things. What does he prioritize? What does he emphasize? What does he give attention to? 
What does he speak to her about? He is teaching her what he values. And what he values is his expression of either what he thinks will get the good or what he thinks is the good. And if he's not showing how that thing points to God, then that leadership is going to be deceitful in the home and will bring about the sort of shame that's warned about. The words of the wicked are lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright will deliver them. Well, we've been told elsewhere that the wicked, when they set a trap, they set it for themselves. You're leading your home, and as the wicked, you have deceitful counsels. You are teaching in a way that rather than life-giving is life-taking, it's destroying it's a sort of killing activity. These words are bringing death to the home. But the mouth of the upright will deliver them. There are problems and difficulties. There's curse. There is strife in the home. The, the curse on woman is, you know, she's going to suffer with having and raising children, and she's going to desire to rule over her husband. So the mouth of the upright will deliver out of these kinds of traps. And so it allows the home to be well-ordered. And as opposed to abdicating, the man takes responsibility. Now the wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. And see, You see here we have the beginning of this section with the wife. And the most important thing for the head of house to care about is his wife. And the result is that the household as a whole is stable and blessed. Right? If you don't help your wife be godly, the, the wicked woman, the foolish woman, tears down her own house. But the wise woman builds it. The stability of the house depends upon the husband leading well, using the word to lead. The wife hearing that word and also teaching it to the children and to those under the authority of the house and to applying it and working together. They're working together as covenanted friends to pursue the glory of God and the building up of a house with his word on the doorpost. The wicked are overthrown and are no more. But the house of the righteous will stand. Stability now is being applied. In the introduction we had stability talked about in the general sense with the righteous man. Now it's applied to the household. right? So we're going to the covenant institution that flows out of that. So now go to eight, verses 8 to 12. A man will be commended according to his wisdom, but he who is of a perverse heart will be despised. Better is the one who is slighted but has a servant than he who mourns, sorry, than he who honors himself but lacks bread. A righteous man regards the life of his animal, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. He who tills, works, cultivates his land will be satisfied with bread, but he who follows frivolity or vain things is devoid of understanding. His heart is, he's lacking a heart. He's lacking rationality. He's lacking thoughtfulness. Okay, the, what is the heart about? What is the inward man about? It's about thought. The wicked covet the catch of evil men, but the root of the righteous yields fruit. Okay, so we have been hit with the idea of the root before in terms of the root. Remember back in verse 3, root has to do with stability. So we again have this section ending with the discussion of stability. You see, each of these sections is ending with the idea of stability. Because otherwise, you're, if you don't have stability, your work is worthless. If, 
You can make all the progress you want as long as you destroy it the next day. Satan will be just fine with that. If you just destroy everything right after you build it, then great, no progress of the kingdom, no progress of godliness. This is fine. What's dangerous to the kingdom of darkness is building and then keeping. You make the thing and you maintain it. That's one of the reasons it's so important for us to look at what the church has done before us. Because we don't want to abandon the work that the Holy Spirit has done in maturing the church so far, in maturing believers that have come before us. The church and its history is not the authority, but the Holy Spirit has not failed to advance and mature the church across time. And we must look to the arguments that have come before us and the advances that have come before us and see how do we build on the stable things that have come before us. And so we return to the Word of God looking at the work of the men that have come before us, knowing that the Holy Spirit has been maturing the church. And so this section here, now let's go to the the work of a man. Verse 8. A man will be commended according to his wisdom, but he who is of a perverse heart will be despised. So wisdom manifests itself in work. It manifests itself in useful work. Now, a man's commended according to his wisdom. Is that really true? Let's think about this for a second. Are the wise just walking around speaking wisdom? And people are like, bravo, bravo, keep talking. The wisdom, I love it. Like, like do we have like random crowds forming around the wisest people on the streets? No, the crowds mob other people, not the wisest. Right? So, so how can this possibly be true? How is the word of God not lying to us? They'll be commended according to their wisdom because wisdom yields good works, and those good works do attract attention. The men who apply wisdom and do insightful things and make progress in dominion and that rule well, there is a drawing of people after them. And the work across time, when it's done in a stable way, it accelerates. Work, the beginning stages of work are hard and less fruitful. Right? You get a new farm, chop down the trees, clear the land, pull the rocks out of the soil. Not very fruitful, very hard. But once it's been cleared and you can plow it year after year, fruitfulness of the work, the fruitfulness is so much higher, right? And as time goes on and something that's far away from the markets becomes closer because it gets developed near it, there's a time and development that makes it so that now that food is easier to transport to market, right? There's, there's this development of things across time. Work becomes easier. The development of things makes future development easier. And so that insightfulness and that prosperity, the association of work to prosperity, to, to wealth, is the association with wisdom. And these are signs, not the reality. Signs are not the reality. But there's a way in which the Lord has structured the world so that wisdom tends towards this commending. And he who is of a perverse heart will be despised. And at first, it's not true. There's so many crowds that clamor for the wicked. But the perverse heart the despising comes with time. There's an instability. And think about you know, people who used to be considered the most progressive of progressive and the things that they said. Barack Obama used to say that he believed the marriage was between a man and a woman. And now that's a hate crime, right? 
So we just choose to overlook it. People choose to overlook it because they want to continue to have some sort of political establishment that they can use to push forward their wicked agenda. But that's what he said. That's what he ran on. That's what he ran on when he was trying to become president. And, and so the instability allows them to you know, make it so that what was said yesterday is now wrong today. And, and this instability of the perversity of things makes it so they eat their own. So when you look at what happens with godless regimes, you know, if you're at all familiar with what happened in the Soviet Union, you'd take a picture of somebody smiling with Stalin, and the next week they figure out how to make a new version of the picture with the person gone, or having the person standing in front of the person they wanted out of it. You, know, you just, this constant changing of, of what's acceptable and who's acceptable, they eat their own. Better is the one who is slighted and has a servant than he who honors himself but lacks bread. So we live in a culture that is so bad at thinking about work that when they hear servant, they're like, like somebody to get me drinks? Right? You, don't, you don't immediately think, better to have a servant, i.e. an employee, who helps you to produce wealth than he who honors himself but lacks bread. So we're, we think of servants and we think servant means somebody who helps you to live in luxury. The idea here is it's better to be dishonored but have the means of production, labor that you hire, so that you can build to a place where you will get honor. Because building up means of production is the exercise of dominion, and the exercise of that dominion over your capital and putting labor intelligently deployed makes it so that you are going to, in the long run, be commended according to your wisdom. And so the deploying of capital and giving up present luxuries and honoring of self allows you to exercise the authority of the law word in dominion in a way that will bring honor to the Lord and will bring honor to yourself and will thereby give you influence to be able to apply the word of God to other things. The alternative is you can honor yourself and not have production and not have what you need, your daily bread. You can talk about literally lacking bread and being hungry. But remember, daily bread, we talk about bread, the things that you need for the performance of your duties. So daily bread for a magistrate is enough money to run the government. Daily bread for a pastor is enough money to run the pastoral duties and keep the diaconal function rolling. Daily bread for a householder is enough to provide for his family and leave an inheritance. Daily bread for the individual is enough to go work so you can do those things. And so this idea of the daily bread, a competent portion to fulfill your duties. If you honor yourself but don't deploy capital to create productivity, you are going to lack the means that you need to perform your duties. So verse 10, a righteous man regards the life of his animal, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. That's an interesting verse. I've heard a lot of really interesting applications of it. But in the context, I want to suggest to you that this, the, the, you know, verse, you know, verse 9 is about how you should start accumulating capital so you can increase what you have dominion over. Verse 10 is about who you should work for while you're trying to accumulate capital. Okay, you're worried about being a servant to somebody? I'll tell you what, a righteous man cares even about the lives of his animals. So as a servant, you'll do better than that. 
But if you go to work for a wicked man, when you think he's doing you kindness, it will be a cruelty. Right, so what kind of man should you work for? And so the idea here is looking for a way to work and looking for a place to put that work to work. And so you look for a righteous man to work for. You also want to look for, a part of the way you look for righteous men to work for or with is, do they have any resources? Have they been cultivating the capital resources that were given to them? Verse 11, he who tills, works, cultivates his land will be satisfied with bread. Well, he who honors himself lacks bread. He who works will be satisfied with bread. And if he has a servant to help him, he'll be even more productive. But he who follows vain things, like honoring himself, is devoid of heart. He's lacking the thinking organ, is the idea here. We think of the heart as pumping blood. The Bible thinks of the heart as thinking. So, the idea here is he who follows vain things is not a thinker. The wicked covet the catch of evil men, but the root of the righteous yields fruit. So, don't go work for wicked men, because a lot of times you have ruthless or wicked men. Remember the ruthless man from last chapter? They retain riches, right? And so there's a tendency to look at the ruthless and say, they've got a bunch of money. Maybe I should go work for this guy who's not very godly but has a bunch of money. Well, if you covet his catch, if you look at all his shiny cars, and you look at the way that he is squandering money and say, I want to spend time with him and be like him, then that shows a wickedness in your own heart. That shows a desire for the materialism that that guy is exemplifying to you. But the root of the righteous yields fruit. The, the stability and the inward stability of wisdom that the righteous have, it yields fruit. And you can enjoy of that productivity if you serve well. Now later on, we're going to run into a proverb that says that just as a man who cares for a fig tree enjoys the, the benefits of that tree, so he who tends his master will enjoy its fruit. Okay, so there's, there's things all over the place here. This idea that you work well. And we hate the words master and servant, but the Bible loves them. So I gave you kind of a summary version of what I just explained in the bullet points. I hope that's fruitful for you. Verse 13, the wicked is ensnared by the transgression of his lips. The, the, the snare I just laid for myself was telling you that I thought I was going to get through this whole chapter, by the way. So I'm going to not do that. We're going to stop at the end of section one. But the wicked is ensnared by the transgression of his lips. But the righteous will come through trouble. A man will be satisfied with good by the fruit of his mouth. And the recompense of a man's hands will be rendered to him. So this, this, this set of verses bleeds earlier and it bleeds down. Okay? So it, it, it kind of connects... Remember, I told you I'm trying to figure out a better term than a Janus, since a Janus is a two-headed false god. So I'm looking for a better one. Uh, if we can have a better term for the looking both ways term, uh, I guess I'll just a hinge text. I'm going to go with that. So it's a hinge text that 
the wicked is ensnared by the transgression of his lips, but the righteous will come through trouble. So the idea that there's a stability to righteousness, why does stability matter? Stability matters when things are bad. Stability matters when things are hard. So when things get shaky, when the wind blows, right, when the waves come, having stable foundations allows what you've built to endure. And so the wicked is ensnared by the transgression of his lips. He's in a trap. And when he, when he, lay, he lays a trap with his own wickedness, and then he gets trapped in his own trap. His own lips, which are deceitful and meant to trap others, trap himself. But the righteous will come through trouble because of the foundation. A man will be satisfied with good by the fruit of his mouth, and the recompense of a man's hands will be rendered to him. Right? We were talking about words and work. The words are a part of the work. And the words have the effect of feeding. They have the effects of feeding others as the fruit of the mouth is a blessing. And they have the effect of satisfying the one who teaches. Because you who teach, you teach yourself. And if you're teaching the truth, then you are reminding yourself of that truth. And then when we act out of what we believe, we reap what we sow. There's a recompense of man's hands that will be rendered to him. And so what we see is that the righteous work with their hands and their mouths. And by both they testify to truth and bring about good. This spreads blessing and reduces curse. This subdues toil, strife, and death. We make a profession of faith with our mouth, and the second witness is our works. And the more poignant, the more powerful, the more credible witness is how people behave. If someone tells you they're a Christian and acts like the devil, then you treat them like they're not a Christian. And when the world hears you say, believe the Bible, obey God, and they see you disobey God like you don't believe the Bible, they're going to believe what you do and they're going to ignore what you say. The power to see curse driven back is in wisdom on display with words of truth and works of righteousness, both of which are the fruit of the Spirit working in our lives and the faith that he creates by his sovereign power. Are there any comments, questions, or objections from those who are voting members or have floor rights? And let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would, again, give strength and faith to the Schwartz family. 
I ask that you would use this word to build us up in the knowledge of you, to help us to have strength and stability. Fortitude comes from your spirit. I ask that you would help us to have wise words to say and actions that are fitting. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.